This is episode 50 of the SSR podcast. 50, like five zero. I feel like I should be throwing us a party with cheesy over-the-hill balloons and ice cream cake. Actually, ice cream cake sounds pretty good right now. With rainbow sprinkles, of course. I can't think of a better book to cover on this milestone episode than Katherine Patterson's Bridge to Terabithia. Published in 1977, the novel won the Newbery Medal in 1978, and about 20 years after that, it became one of my favorite books in elementary school. It's the story of two unlikely friends and the imaginary world that they build for each other, smack in the middle of a real world that is often punishing and judgmental. Bridge to Terabithia is perhaps best known for its truly heartbreaking ending, which you know I'll be spoiling shortly for those who may have forgotten the details, and the way it introduces readers to grief. Reading this book as an adult was a true eye-opener for me, and realizing how deftly Katherine Patterson handles issues of poverty, relationships, conservatism, religion, death, and the afterlife for her young audiences inspired quite the conversation between me and my guest. This week's guest has an amazing story of her own, and I'm sharing this personal piece of her bio with you because I think it will help inform the way you get to know her in the conversation you're about to hear. Meg Ellison was born to a military family and is from everywhere. She grew up as poor as it is possible for an American child to be, living in and out of doors across the country. She was abandoned by her parents at 14 and adopted later in her adolescence by her aunt, a single mother of four. She dropped out of high school in a cursed rural town in Southern California and went immediately into the kind of manual labor and retail jobs that trap most low-income women without an education. But Meg didn't fall into the trap. With the help of community college and several grants, she went on to become the first college graduate in her family after getting a degree in English from UC Berkeley. Meg published her debut novel and her first work of nonfiction in 2014. She lives in Oakland now, working in fintech marketing in San Francisco. Meg identifies as an LGBTQ writer and essayist. She also writes satire and stage comedy for her sketch group, The Mess. She lives on social media, swallows the whole internet every day, and writes like she's running out of time. Meg is well known for a viral McSweeney's essay entitled If Women Wrote Men the Way Men Wrote Women, and her novel The Book of the Unnamed Midwife was named Best Book of the Year by Publishers Weekly. Her latest novel is called The Book of Flora. Follow Meg on Twitter at Meg Ellison and learn more about her writing at MegEllison.com. Links to her work will be available in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 50. Libro FM continues to partner with SSR, and for that, I'm so grateful. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there you know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. When I buy audiobooks from Libro.fm, I support my favorite Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic. For the month of June only, Libro.fm has been so kind as to offer one free audiobook to anyone who comes on board as a Hermione Granger level sponsor over on Patreon. You can learn more about that at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thanks so much, Patreon supporters. You're keeping the lights on over here, and I really appreciate it. As always, I invite you to follow us on social media. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at ssrpod and by searching the SSR podcast on Facebook. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. 
Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Meg. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm pumped because we're talking about Bridge to Terabithia. And I'll start by saying that when I was little, I thought that it was pronounced Bridge to Terabithia. Oh. And that's how I used to talk about it. And then I think... It was when the movie came out in 2007, so I was like well into my teens by the time I realized that it was Terabithia, but I do find myself kind of like second guessing every time I say it, so I'm going to try to be consistent throughout the episode, but (laughs) there's the first fun fact about me in this book, Bridge to Terabithia is the proper pronunciation. I think if you grew up Catholic and you constantly heard the name of the place Arimathea, it would make sense to say it Terabithia, you know? Okay. Yeah, I, I did theory. not grow up Catholic, and I'm, I'm making it oh. very clear now, So, but that's helpful. <laughs> I wonder I wonder how many kids guessed it right on the first try. If, I wonder if I was in the majority or in the minority with being incorrect there. I think if you ask kids about fantasy novels in general, we would have wildly different pronunciations for lots of things before they had movies. So probably Tolkien names were all over the place before the films. That's probably true. And I was reading um, one of the pieces that I read before I jumped on with you today that Terabithia is actually quite similar to a word in the Narnian world. And so Catherine Patterson, the author, was like, oh, it must have been subconscious because I picked it up from Narnia, but I wasn't aware of it. And I think that C.S. Lewis must have picked it up from the Bible. And so we're all just kind of accidentally pulling things from different sources. So again, maybe if I'd been a little bit more tuned into the world of Narnia, although I did read the books. If I'd been a little bit more tuned in, maybe I would have gotten it right on the first try. But we're all on the cool. same page, literally and figuratively. Uh-huh. We are. It's true. At this point. So I'd love to know what inspired you to choose Bridge to Terabithia as the book for your SSR episode. So I got a short list of books to choose from. And then I was looking it over. And the only one I had a real emotional connection to was Bridge to Terabithia. It was bar none one of my favorite books when I was say 10 and under Uh, a lot of people think it's really dramatic or really traumatic for small children but for those of us who had trauma at a young age Terabithia was a wonderful way to engage with that and to to find an echo of the feelings we were having so as soon as I saw it I was like that's the one I have always loved that book when I was a kid I wanted to be Catherine Patterson that was what I told my teachers so like what are you going to be when you grow up and I was like her really well what a small world that this is one of the books that I put on your short list it was perfect really we must have had some sort of like a, a magical connection mentally that I added this to your list. I love that that's your connection to the book. Well, when I posted photos of the cover on my Instagram stories, I can't even tell you how many people almost immediately responded something to the effect of like, I'm already crying. This book (laughs) wrecked me when I was a kid. I remember like experiencing grief for the first time with this book. So, so a lot of people have such an emotional connection to this one. And I have to say that one of the most interesting experiences that I had coming back to this book was that I strangely had blocked out. I think that like the tragic traumatic piece of this book, what I remembered was the imagination and like the building of the world and this like friendship that Leslie and Jess build. 
And honestly, when people had started messaging me that they were already crying and had been so wrecked by this book, I couldn't quite remember why. I was like, oh, you must be super nostalgic. I don't know what that was about because I was a pretty engaged reader as a kid, but it's interesting like what sticks with you and what Mm -hmm. your clever brain will leave behind. It's a really multifaceted book. I think it's easy to remember very specific parts of it because those are the ones that you connected to. So for a lot of people, it's about bullying. And for a lot of people, it's about ostracism. And I've even heard the read that it was an important book to people who identified as tomboys when they were kids because that's Leslie's you know cross to bear in the story but it is quite something to overlook the trauma of the death of a child and your memory of a book where that's the central event yeah and there's all of these religious elements and oh yeah all of these different things that I just totally didn't pick up on as listeners will know I tended to read a lot of books when I was growing up perhaps like a year or two before maybe I quote unquote should have read them. Um, So I'm wondering if part of it was just that like I gobbled this book up maybe before I was mentally prepared to like absorb some of these slightly more mature ideas and if I latched onto the things that were fun and more age appropriate for me. So I was sort of stunned by like the depth of this book to me as an adult. And and before we get into it, I'll just offer a few quick facts for listeners. The book, as we mentioned briefly, was written by Catherine Patterson, your childhood hero, as I've now learned. It was published in 1977. It won the Newbery Medal in 1978. I did not know this, but it was inspired by a real event that took place Mm -hmm. in the author's life. We do spoilers on the show, so it's not a problem for us to reveal right up front that Leslie does die in the end. And Catherine Patterson was inspired to write this book because her son David's best friend was killed by lightning when she was eight years old. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And she actually was the daughter of two missionaries and her husband was a Presbyterian minister. And so when she's been interviewed um, about why she was motivated to write this book. She says that she, you know, had had experienced this very senseless event and was trying to make sense of it for herself. And clearly she she was raised in the Christian church. And I think as much as this book has been challenged by religious groups, you have to believe that some of the book was informed by her own experiences with religion and trying to like make sense of something really horrible that happened in her own son's life. Absolutely, had to be. And uh, as much as religion and the culture of church going does play a part in the book, I never thought it happened in an unfair way. It's really just people trying to grapple with the terrible realities of life and death, and a lot of us do that through the lens of the lens of religion. And the people in the book are just doing that. Like I've never thought it was unfair to Christians or to non-Christians. It just Hoping. Yeah, I think that there's there are always people that are looking to find fault True. with pieces of art. And I was shocked, as I often am, by the number of challengers that this book mm-hmm. has had. Um, I'll include links, as always, to these articles in the show notes, listeners. But there are just like an endless list of challenges to this book. In the ALA's list of like the most challenged books from 1990 to 2000, this book was number eight. Wow. And it was 28. Uh, between 2000 and 2010 so even as things eased up like this book is still getting some hate and a lot of it a lot of the reasons that I found were because Jesse, the main character, uses the word Lord a lot, like outside of prayer. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very gentle blasphemy. If we're going to talk blasphemies, it's not even the proper name of a God. Yeah, I know. I was shocked that that one, it kept coming up like in multiple states, multiple organizations had that one as their like main complaint about the book a lot because like he was raised in like rural Virginia. And so I think people were like, oh, that never would have happened. Like if he was raised in this 
church-going family as we're meant to believe. His mother seems to be like very God-fearing, but still like a little bit of an extreme challenge. Other things that came up in the challenges, it contains language and subject matter that set bad examples and gives students a negative view of life, profane <laughs> language, references to witchcraft, satanic and danger to our children. Again, these are things that I did not pick up on even as an adult. So I think There's nothing satanic in this book. No. I know a lot of people think that anything that smacks of another religion is technically satanic, but that's a stretch. Yeah, it's a stretch. And it is ironic because now knowing the context that Again, Catherine Patterson was the daughter of Christian missionaries and was married to a minister. I would imagine that she could only like laugh at some of these challenges because... I hope she did. I hope it didn't break her heart. I hope she thought it was funny. Yeah, I do too. In the few quotes that I found from her, she just like didn't get it. She was like, I don't understand why I'm getting all of these complaints. And I think <laughs> because her I, book made people feel feelings. People hate when they're made to feel feelings. So they'll find a reason to get away from that feeling. The book is just, it's really emotionally tight. And it's hard for parents to watch their kids go through feelings that intense and not know how to get around it. So they think, stop the book, stop the feeling. I think that's a very powerful way to put it and very true. It's like, how do we, how do we stop? How do we create like a block to this conversation? You know, we don't even want to have to talk about this with our kids. And if anything, for me, I'm like, I I sort of understand why some parents, particularly in maybe the 80s and 90s, would be upset by the frankness with which this book treats death because it is very frank. Um, But that at least like explicitly did not come up in any of the challenges that I read of this book. So I thought that was interesting that like of all the things that we could complain about, there's this like really tragic death of a kid that doesn't really seem to be addressed. But that's just my opinion. Uh, listeners right. would love to know what you think. Meg, I would love your thoughts. Getting back into this world, what were your initial thoughts in those first few pages, in the first few chapters, particularly since this book meant so much to you as a kid? What was it like to come back to it? I really love Jess's voice. I didn't realize as a kid how important that was to my reading experience because as a kid, you just accept everything you're given about POV. It's one of the reasons unreliable narrators work so well. So going back it was like I know this kid like I was like this kid in many ways he's kind of a pissant and he he has trouble with authority he has trouble with bullies he has trouble with his sisters he's always kind of itchy around other people and I remember feeling like I, I had a lot in common with him even though we came from different places and grew up in different ways and I loved that and I loved the way his point of view revealed slowly that he was very sensitive and very artistic and he had all these abilities that were just simmering below the surface because he hadn't yet become the person he was going to be and mm. uh, that in retrospect I can definitely see why I would have felt kinship with him even though I didn't have the words for it back then mm. there's also a, a small amount of sort of pastoral beauty to the way Patterson describes the area where Jess lives I've always loved his background and uh, and appreciated because it gave me a better sense of the setting like it's it's really rural and he's deprived of a lot of connection and, and possibility because of it but he's also very able to see the beauty in it her writing just generally is beautiful and I agree the way she describes where they live and sort of their way of life, even though it's so foreign to me. And it doesn't sound particularly appealing, certainly. (laughs) Jess's life on the farm where he is kind of just put upon. Like, nobody else in his family does any of the chores. And of course, living on a farm, there's always a lot to be done. He's the middle child of five. He has two older sisters and two 
younger sisters. And he always winds up doing all of the work around the farm and around the house. His dad's always away working, trying to feed the family. And none of it sounds very fun, but just the way that Catherine Patterson describes it, it is very intriguing. And there's like a simplicity to it that is kind of calming. And I don't know if it just, it brought me back to reading it as a kid, but there's a simplicity to the way that she described it that I really loved. And I agree, Jesse's voice, he goes by Jess sometimes, Jesse others. Jesse's voice was very appealing to me in a way that it wasn't necessarily when I was a kid. I think as a little girl, I I was always trying to latch on to the female heroine of a book, and that was just my inclination. And I don't know that I always grew up appreciating perspectives of little boys. And maybe that's not great to admit, I'm not sure, but that was just sort of my programming when I was a kid was to like latch on to the female characters. And now growing up all these years later, I feel like I have such an appreciation for the full breadth of characters in a book. And Jesse really is a wonderful narrator and such an interesting person and so multifaceted. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I read a lot of books from a male perspective. I was really into adventure books when I was a kid, and those tended, well, at least in the past, tended to be written from a male perspective. Yeah. So I, I kind of liked that this book kept Leslie at a slight distance. We never quite know Leslie the way we know Jessie. She's always sort of a cipher, uh, even up and through through her death. So I, I end up feeling very close with Jess, and Leslie's like someone who passed in and out of my own life the way he, she did in his. Yeah. Well, we meet Jess... It's the summer before school starts, and we meet him. He has, like, us. He's single-minded. He wants to be the fastest kid at school. And I think that it's so reminiscent of, like, any everybody as a kid, like, you just have one thing that you want. You want to be the best at something. Even, I think, introverted kids can relate to that to a certain degree. Like, you want to find something that's all yours, even if it's more private, like, kids just they just they everybody has a goal um and often it is about competition I think growing up like there is a lot of pressure to like be the best at something and so Jess trains all summer to be the fastest and there was one quote that I pulled out because I really think that it illustrates the kind of character that he is he's grown up sort of being seen a certain way by everyone at school and this is the quote one time last year Jesse had won not just the first heat but the whole shebang only once but it had put into his mouth a taste for winning ever since he'd been in first grade he'd been that crazy little kid that draws all the time so he's like tired of being seen as the artistic boy which makes me sad because I love that he's the artistic boy but he's struggling to figure out like how to be different than everyone sees him but also like he still wants to draw he still wants to do that privately but he he wants to sort of break out of the identity that he's been put into at school right and he also he wants to gain some respect it's difficult to do that when the thing that you're good at is, is marginalized or looked down upon. And we can see an echo of that in Jess's relationship with his father because his father denigrates art because it isn't masculine and it isn't productive and he doesn't see it as having a point, but his dad probably understands his pride in winning the heat at the school. I had a really different experience as a kid. I, I won writing contests, but I knew immediately what it meant to have a small taste of victory to a kid like Jesse who had so little of his own. And uh, the other thing is, is I loved reading books about kids who grew up in poverty because everybody reads you know, little, little princeling lordling gets whatever they want books because that's who they'd like to be but jesse really doesn't have anything and the, the book does a really good job of reminding us what these small victories mean to a kid who has so little of his own i think that Catherine patterson does a great job of illustrating that in in ways that kids can understand like an example that stood out to me was 
the equipment that they had or didn't have at recess. Like the school was so poor. Not only are these individual families so poor, but the school itself has so few resources that they don't have money to have enough balls and like jump ropes for everybody. And that's why these kids start running in the first place because they don't need equipment to do it. Right. There's nothing else to do and you don't need anything to have heat. Also, he talks about whether he could run faster if he had better shoes and the things that they covet are so small. Like the great prize of the day is a pack of Twinkies. You know when that's a big deal that these kids don't have a lot in the way of treats in their life. Mm -hmm. And the dad gives each of the kids a dollar for Christmas presents for each of the siblings. And there's almost like, I would say half of a chapter devoted to Jesse's math around how he's going to make sure that Maybelle, who's his favorite sister, gets the Barbie doll that he wants her to have. And so he's like, okay, you know, can I pull from the budget that I have for everybody else so that Maybelle can have the Barbie doll? Will people be upset? Like who won't care about having a smaller gift? And just the fact that he has to do all this math and that in fifth grade, he's learned already to do this kind of math in order to to get what he wants, to give people what he wants to give them. It's pretty amazing just to see how that's been internalized for him. Absolutely. And every poor kid has done that math. Like, if I kept a quarter from my lunch money every week and just didn't get a juice box, could I get this toward my goal? And I've always loved that this story involves so much of him trying to protect Maybelle from the worst of their circumstances. Like, he gets between her and bullies. He gets between her and problems with her parents. He gets between her and poverty. He tries to see to the best of her joys, and it, it makes him very endearing as a character. He's the only brother, and so he has plays this interesting role in his family where he is kind of annoyed by all of his sisters all the time. But as you mentioned, he has this special relationship with Maybelle where he wants to protect her from everything. Mm -hmm. He's not always that nice to her. Like, they give each other such a hard time throughout the book. He doesn't ever want her to follow him. He doesn't necessarily want to play with her, but he also just wants her to be okay, and he would drop everything to come to her rescue at any moment. He has these older sisters that are just kind of terrible. They're the worst. Um, they're the worst. I, <laughs> I think, was surprised when I went back and read it. I was like, God, I forgot how much I hated these two. They're awful. And I love the way that Catherine Patterson writes about life in a big family because it just it's just like Jess getting lost in the chaos that is his like horrible teen older sisters who they're so focused on appearances and the way they look. And I do think part of that is caused by their mother, who even though like they don't have a lot of money and she constantly is scrimping and saving, like she's very focused on how they all look and like how they present themselves at church. And she doesn't want Jess to be friends with the wrong kind of people. I say that in quotes. Like she's very into kind of controlling the appearances that she can control, even though money's tight. I think that's kind of passed on to the older sisters. And the younger sisters are still too young to care about that stuff. So, like, I hope, you know, in my my mind where this world continues, I hope that Maybelle and the, the baby, that they don't fall into those traps because they're still really innocent and mostly sweet in this book, except for a few moments where there are some weird conversations with them. Yeah, definitely. In this read, I was trying to think of those older sisters with a with a more compassionate eye than I initially had for them because I had older sisters too and I was like oh yeah that's exactly what these bitches are like but also like they're probably facing the possibility of of inescapable generational poverty like one of his older sisters is going to be pregnant in a year yeah and she knows she's never going to get out of her hometown and she's never going to have anything good in her life and if for one day she gets to wear pantyhose and lipstick at church and have people think she's pretty like that might be the best it gets Mm. so I was trying to see them more compassionately even though I still very much don't like them 
That's a very kind read of them that I that I very much appreciate, Meg. Thank you for that. <laughs> and oh, as yeah, as the oldest sister in my family, on behalf of older sisters everywhere, I say thank you for that too. <laughs> cool. The other interesting thing about Jesse, and I had such mixed feelings about this throughout the whole book, is that he has this crush on a teacher and her name is Miss Edmonds. She's the music teacher. And because this book takes place in the 70s, there's this really interesting contrast throughout the whole book because the teacher, Miss Edmonds, and also kind of Leslie, they have this hippie sort of sensibility to them. Leslie's parents are writers. And so she comes from outside of this town that seems very conservative. Jesse mentions at one point in the book that like all of the students in Miss Edmonds class secretly call her a peacenik and he's like I thought it was cool to like peace now that the Vietnam War is over like I thought we were past this but the town is still very stuck in these ideas about like what's appropriate and what's sort of acceptable in school like Miss Edmonds is the only female teacher that they've ever seen wear pants but Jessie is really into her and at first it seems really sweet and I, I think that there's something to be said like I'm sure I had crushes on teachers I'm sure everybody does but later in the book it does get a little bit weird <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's true. Ms. Evans at first seems like, you know, she's appropriately sweet to Jesse. And he, in like a very fifth grade way, is like, I think she might be into me too. We really like each other. But as a reader, especially as an adult reader, you're like, no, she's just being nice. She's just doing her job. But then at the end of the book, at a moment that precipitates a lot of the, the sadness and the trauma at the end, Ms. Edmonds actually calls Jesse's house phone and is like, I was going to go to the museum today. Do you want to go? And I understand that some of this is just a product of the times and people had landlines and maybe some of this was appropriate, but it did kind of blow my mind. That does not hold up in 2019. That is, it it's hard she's, to read in 2019. She's way out of her lane, honestly. I, I When I was rereading at this time, I was thinking, oh, she's lonely. Mm. Nobody in this town likes her. She probably doesn't have any friends and she's facing the possibility of doing yet another one of her favorite trips alone. Mm. So she's thinking, who's been sympathetic to me? Who's never called me a name? Who doesn't look at me like I have bats coming out of my nostrils? And she thinks of this kid and yeah, it's it's super inappropriate. She never crosses the line with him, but she's still expecting uh, an emotional type of labor from a child that she frankly should not be. I like the tension that it introduces. I like that Jess feels that he ultimately betrays Leslie for his teacher because of this urge to be around her because of this attraction. It, it creates a really complicated stew of emotions. But you're right. As a, as a reader in 2019, you're like, big yikes, big yikes, please run. This teacher does not have good boundaries. <laughs> Yeah, it does not age well. And, you know, again, I, I can't help but wonder, like, was this something that maybe did happen in the 70s, you know, where in a small town, you know, if there was a school teacher who, as you said, was lonely and like was well liked and well known by parents, like maybe it would have been perfectly acceptable for this to happen. It just it doesn't change the fact that today that would be a little bit scary for a lot yeah, of reasons. A big red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Let's turn our attention to Leslie because we've talked about Jess quite a bit and their friendship is really lovely in so many ways. Leslie comes to town. She moves into the old Perkins house down the street from Jesse's farm and he sees the family moving in. And at first he's like so not interested in being her friend. And a lot of it is like a boy girl thing. And again, some of this is the product of the time in which this book was written, but there's a lot of like gendered stuff that's not cool in this book. A lot of talk about like, well, you know, she wouldn't be allowed to be in the race anyway because she's a girl. She's not allowed 
to play on the upper fields because she's a girl. The boys are mortified that she's going to join their races, period. But then when she wins, it's like game over. <laughs> They'll just never have them again. Yeah, I, I forgotten that before I rewrote it this time that Jess can't initially gender Leslie and kind of struggles to do it mm. because Leslie has short hair and they're both prepubescent and Leslie has a name that at the time was much more gender neutral. So at first he has to deal with her on a type of footing where he's never met a girl before. And then I was thinking about the parallel between Leslie being brought up in the city by very progressive parents and Miss Edmonds. And really, I think Jesse's into progressive women. I mm-hmm. think Jesse's intro into feminists is as new and nascent as they were in the 70s. And uh, But our first meeting with her, you're right, problematizes almost all of those relationships at once. And like her parents are, they're gentrifiers. Like they moved out to one of the poorest counties in Virginia with all this money. The results are pretty mixed. It, it exposes Jesse to all these things he might not have ever heard about otherwise. It allows him to fall in love with some things that he would never have access to. But it's also complicated to introduce yourself and your wealth and your resources to a community of people who have so little. One of the articles that I was reading was talking about how Catherine Patterson did a really lovely job of demonstrating what economic inequality can look like. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that, because I thought that that was an interesting comment. Absolutely. Uh, I remember Jess's reflections on Leslie's house, and we get those when he's outside of his element, he's in her home, and we have his internal thoughts. So they're doing things like repainting rooms just because they want to, not because the paint is peeling or presents a hazard, but because they'd like this room to be gold when the sun hits it. And we know by the intensity of his fascination with that idea, and his captivation by its beauty that his parents can't really do anything to beautify their house. Like, they probably fix leaks when it rains, but they've never thought of their home as an expression of themselves because that's a rich people thing. I remember he looks at their stereo and he's afraid to even touch it because it looks so complicated. I think he says it looks like something from NASA mm-hmm. because he's never seen anything that advanced. Even even though he loves, you know, listening to stereo quality music, what kid didn't in the 70s, he's intimidated by it. And then half the time when Jeff needs something in the novel, uh, Leslie provides it to him because she knows, and, and she knows very kindly that he can't do it for himself. So like, they're going out in the rain, and she gets him boots and a raincoat, and they share an umbrella, or her parents constantly try to feed Jess and even Maybell, and, and she's the one who gives him this first gift of real art supplies so that he can do the best he can by his talents instead of using, you know, Crayolas at home with his sisters. I mean, every possible moment, every opportunity to, to show us economic inequality, Patterson's taken it. They even discuss it when they're talking about what Leslie packs for lunch, because all the kids are interested in each other's lunches, and she's got stuff that they've never seen. I mean, they make fun of her for it. They've never seen yogurt before, and they, they make her feel like a weirdo but the truth is it's just access there's also this interesting dynamic introduced by television oh, um, I forgot about that which I yes. thought was kind of which which was kind of interesting I think especially because when when it comes up at first I don't know that we as the reader have yet come to understand that Leslie is rich I think that she just kind of mentions it in class before she and Jesse get close and the assumption is oh well if you don't have a television you probably don't have the money for one but we come to find out that like her parents just don't really believe in television and all of the other kids have televisions all of these kids who were led to believe have very little or nothing but they all watch tv and it's a funny dynamic because it's it adds this sort of I don't 
I feel weird even using this phrase, but like intellectual snobbery about the TV, even though you can afford one. And then all of these other people were like, probably your TV is your prized possession. And that's something that we see even today. Like, I think that does age well, where there's so many people who maybe don't have a lot of money, but like being able to have a great television set and to be able to pay for like great cable, like that's your entertainment. And that's something that makes you feel pride in your home. It's almost like more of a luxury to be able to decide that you don't want to have a TV. That's exactly what I think she was trying to say. So I think for most of the people in Justice community, their television was their most important connection to the outside world. Like it's their biggest source of culture. It's their most important source of news. It's literally their conduit to what's going on in the rest of the world. And Leslie's parents are so rich that they have taken the luxury of cutting themselves off from that source. They get it through other means. They're probably getting the New York Times and rural delivery. And they've decided that they can do without it, not because it's a luxury, because they find it a hindrance. And that's that's a huge disparity. That's not just I'm one class better than you. That's I'm so many classes better than you that the best thing about your life is a bother to me. I thought that was such a great detail on the part of Katherine Patterson, especially because as a kid, I remember just being like, oh, okay, like kind of interesting that she doesn't watch TV. And I wasn't like a huge TV watcher as a kid because I loved to read and that was kind of my thing. But I remember sort of, if anything, being like, oh, like it's kind of cool. Like I don't love to watch TV either. But as an adult reading it, like that means so much more than you realize it does, especially, yeah, and to a family in the 70s. I mean, they were one generation in as TV watchers. Everybody, literally everybody had one. Yeah. So, I mean, people in the 90s would be like, I threw my TV away. I don't even watch TV. But in the 70s, like, that made you a revolutionary, not a hipster. Yeah, because her parents are too busy, like, working on their books. And they moved right. to the country, quote unquote, to, I think, what how Leslie described it was, they're reassessing their values. That is what she says. Because, you know, it's one of those phrases you hear your parents say and you pick it up. Like, it sounds so weird in the mouth of a child. Yeah, I kind of love that. And it did feel very 70s to me, you know, not mm. to stereotype, but this whole idea that, like, you know, there was a group of people that just kind of wanted to, like, go their own way and do their own thing, and this is how they were choosing to do it. I thought that that seemed pretty true of the time, although they were putting Leslie in a really tough spot because she could not (laughs) have been more different than the kids in this community. I mean, it's good that they raised her to be so resilient and so self-reliant that she could come through it, but, yeah, they did not make an easy choice for their kid. No. And and as we mentioned, Jesse at first really does not want anything to do with her, and then when she starts to be bullied a little bit by some of the other boys during the race, Jess decides that he wants to come to her rescue. And it seems like all of a sudden they're friends. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, like, how do you think that happened? Like, what was it about her that in that moment drew them together when he really, like, wanted to keep his distance until then? It's difficult uh, reading as a writer. I don't find that it diminishes my pleasure in reading in any way, but it does make me examine these things with a little more skepticism than I normally would. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, you can say that it's an expression of Jess's kindness as a character, that he can't stand to see somebody bullied. He's reaching out to her because he's a good person and he feels like a bad thing is happening. And that's how she knows that he's the kind of person she should be friends with. And it's not just desperation. Like, this is the one person who's decent to me so that we're friends now. Uh, And then, you know, the connection deepens because of his interest in art and because of his ability to connect with the way she writes. And they get along for a good reason. However... 
reading as a writer, I look back at that scene and I see an author sweating over a book and saying, I've got to get these kids to be friends and I don't know how to do it. And this looks to me like a problem solver. Like she could have over a slow period of incidences had them share something or connect over something that would have us develop that. But this develops it really quickly and gives us an immediate reason. So it looks, it looks a little contrived, but I think Patterson makes it work very well. Yeah. I have to admit, it gave me a little bit of whiplash. I was like, Oh, okay. Now they're friends. And in reading some of the summaries that are written about this book online, just because I always like to check and make sure that, you know, I'm keeping up with everything. The summaries were all like, and then all of a sudden they become friends or like over the course of a race, Jess and Leslie bond. And I'm like, I guess, I guess that is what happened. But it was funny because in the process of actually reading the book, I got a little bit of whiplash, but at the same time, I didn't really question it. Cause as you said, Jess just seems like a good, sweet, little boy who would naturally come to somebody's rescue but then when you really step back and think about it you're like oh, I don't I, I'm not really sure how they made the connection the only other thought that I had in hindsight was that he's been raised in this house of girls it seems um, based on his father's demeanor and the way that his dad like treats the women in his life he has sort of like a mandate to like protect women and like look out for girls and I wonder if that's sort of an instinct that's been bred into him almost um being the only boy in this big family that he couldn't help but like stand up for her but as you said he is hesitant to gender Leslie because he's like I've I'm not sure that she's a little girl. Um, she doesn't present as girl. She doesn't present as done. girl. Yeah, so I, I that was my thought, but at the same time, like that complicates my theory. So I'm not I'm not quite sure. But all of a sudden, that's friends, and they're riding the bus together, which is, of course, where all great friendships begin when you're in elementary school. Clearly, yes. And they're so rural. Like you've got to imagine, it's a long bus ride. I used to live in a mountain community where we were 45 to 50 minutes away from my school. So your friend on the bus was like your best friend. We didn't have cell phones, and that is a long time to read a book by yourself or talk to somebody. Yeah, that is a long time. My school bus ride was like 15 to 20 minutes. And I remember even that seeming very far and I didn't have any friends on the bus. And there was this boy that was always trying to talk to me. And I remember it making me very uncomfortable. And those 15 to 20 minutes felt very long if you didn't have a buddy or if you were in a situation that didn't feel especially natural to you. Wow, 40 to 45 minutes is a long, long haul. It is. So yeah, the more rural these kids are, the more vital that relationship is. And Terabithia is born out of their shared imagination and their shared need for like a special place that's just theirs. They're each kind of lonely in their own way. They each are other in certain kinds of ways, both in their families and at school. The quote that I pulled out from Leslie was, we need a place just for us. It would be so secret that we would never tell anyone in the whole world about it. And then Catherine Patterson goes on to describe the way that they put this world together in the woods near their houses. Jess, because he's been raised on this farm, having all this responsibility, like he's very resourceful and he knows how to build things. And I mentioned this briefly at the top of the episode, but growing up, that's the kind of stuff that I really loved best about books like this. Like I loved getting into the details of like how you actually built a world. We did uh, an episode about the Egypt game a few weeks ago. I love the Egypt game. Yeah, which we discovered is its own sort of problematic, but the best parts of that book um, lie in the descriptions about like how they come up with these 
these different rituals and they create these characters for themselves and they build a physical sort of set for their games. And I think the Egypt game provides a lot more detail about the world building than Bridge to Terabithia does. But in my head, for some reason, Bridge to Terabithia had like so many details about how you build a world. And I think that's just what I latched onto as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. I love the the work of shared imagining and the way Jess feels unsure at first. And he's like, I don't know if I can play this game. I feel like she's way smarter than me. But then he makes his first few tentative choices and she's so welcoming and she's so affirming that they're able to do it together. And then you get another example of that economic difference between them when Jess has the know-how and then Leslie provides most of their materials and stocks their castle with supplies and makes sure they have everything that they need. She's the she's the person in this kingdom who runs the exchequer, I would say. Yeah. Well, and she read a lot, so she knew she sort of had this this context in which she could create a new imaginative world and Jess doesn't have time to read all of these fantasy books. He's out milking right. cows every morning, so the fact that he has this friend who not only has all of this knowledge about like a creative fantasy world that you could build, but who's then willing to like lend him the book, she gives him all of her Narnia books and asks him to read them so that he can like learn the language of being a king and he feels very unsure of himself. I pulled out another quote that says, Leslie named their secret land Terabithia and she loaned Jess all of her books about Narnia so he would know how things went in a magic kingdom, how the animals and the trees must be protected and how a ruler must behave. That was the hard part. When Leslie spoke, the words rolling out so regally, you knew she was a proper queen. He could hardly manage English, much less the poetic language of a king. So he feels so unworthy of, I think, A, her attention, and B, this even sort of imaginative idea that he could be the king of a, of a land all of his own. Right. No, and I loved that about it. And I loved that he makes those small choices in how to make his language sound more formal and more uh, regal is the best word for it, I guess. And most of his choices come from what he knows from church. Like, that is his his pool of elevated language is almost entirely like pseudo-biblical or sounds like something he heard from the pulpit. Even after he starts reading, he's drawing from his own life. And to Leslie, it sounds unusual and probably even a little exotic since she's never been to church. So they end up with a really interesting syncretism. Well, let's talk more about church and their different yeah. languages about church because that was an interesting scene and one that I'm sure that meant nothing to me when I was a kid. I was not mm-hmm. raised especially religious. I've spoken about this on the podcast briefly before, but um, my mom is Jewish and my dad is Christian. And um, I would say my mom defines herself as more culturally Jewish while my dad is a churchgoer. And I grew up going to church with my dad and my stepmom, but always bringing a book um, until I was sort of old enough to opt out of church because I didn't feel like I was supposed to be paying attention because my mom was Jewish. <laughs> so I, I was kind of aware of like the basic landscape of what it was like to go to church but I certainly would not have read into the nuances of a scene like this as an elementary schooler. Leslie is basically like, oh, going to church sounds like it could kind of be a cool experience. Like it's almost anthropological to her more than anything else. Right. And she's, yeah, she's bored. And Jesse's talking about how it's like this huge deal for his family to go to church on Easter Sunday. And she asks to go and Jesse scores her an invite, even though his mom is a little bit hesitant about the whole thing because she's not like the right kind of people to go to church with them. And they get to church and Leslie of dresses completely different than Jess has ever seen her dress and you know there's a whole there's a whole paragraph or two about that but in the end after the service 
Jess, Leslie, and Maybelle, Jess's younger sister, are chatting about it. And Leslie, of course, is like taken with the story. She's like, wow, like this whole thing about Jesus dying on the cross, it's like kind of a beautiful story. It's pretty crazy, but great. And Maybelle is like, it's awful. Like, how could you think that it's beautiful? And Leslie says something to the effect of like, isn't it interesting how I don't have to believe in it and I think it's beautiful and you have to believe in it and you think it's awful. And I thought, wow, like what a profound freaking insight about faith and religion, like of all sorts. Yeah, it really is. I kind of loved that Patterson, I imagine she was working out some of her own cultural difficulties by getting into that because there are so many people for whom their religious path is a source of constant distress. The story itself is distressing. The requirements of behavior are distressing. The social interactions are distressing. And yet they feel like it's what they must do. It's almost a form of ongoing self-punishment. So having Leslie connect with things and be very, very emotionally affected by the story of the crucifixion and all of that, she just brought such naivete to something that people took for granted and for wrote and for required whether they liked it or not it really makes you it makes you question like whether if your religious path brings you no joy if it brings you no peace if it doesn't increase your compassion then what is its actual utility in your life and I think Maybelle is a good illustration of that because she's this little girl who is like this is awful but and then she goes on to basically say to Leslie like well if you don't believe you're going you're going to hell if you when you die Which is the one thing she's really internalized from church, not the stories, Mm -hmm. not any kind of useful thing, but just the threat that looms over people if they don't behave correctly of the afterlife, which is just heartbreaking and sets up the book to be that much harder when everything changes. Yeah, I mean, her faith is not bringing her any joy, as you mentioned. All that she can think about is like, Leslie, you better take it back right now that you don't believe in this because if, if God hears you, you're going to hell. And you do have this image of like this really small child in like an Easter dress. So it already has a fully coercive relationship with her religion. Yeah. Who's obviously terrified of consequences. It's pretty intense. Um, reading it that is. as an adult, I was like, whoa, maybe I'm really sorry that you're having this experience with church. And I think that there's so many wonderful things to be gained when people have a relationship with whatever spiritual practice makes sense to them and brings them joy. And unfortunately, this is an illustration of, I think, the opposite end of the spectrum when it can be a really problematic circumstance for people to grow up in. Right. And then later in the book, that becomes Jesse's fixation. Mm-hmm. He's worried that Maybell was right and that the, the spiritual tradition in which he was raised was right. I mean, he ends up having to seek solace from his father, who is not a character who's really capable of giving solace, but on this one thing is able to relent and say, you know, God doesn't send little girls to hell, which we could argue theology of it all day long, but it is what Jesse needs to hear. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to break down this spoiler a little bit more because unfortunately we've come to the time in the episode where we have to talk about it as heartbreaking as it is. Uh, We've alluded to it a couple of times, but essentially what happens is that when Jess goes to the museum with Miss Edmonds, um, he chooses not to invite Leslie and he kind of explains it away by being like, well, she's been to the museum before. Like, I, she wouldn't want to go anyway. And the weather had been bad. And so Jess had gotten really nervous about using their rope swing to get to Terabithia because he's a lot more cautious than Leslie. And he was kind of reaching the end of his comfort zone with her and, and having to have like what I would call our hard conversations with a friend that all of us have to have as adults sometimes where we're like, I'm not necessarily comfortable with this or like, I kind of need some space. He was really struggling with that. And uh, this day that he goes to the museum, he comes back and his parents are like, your friend Leslie is dead. And he finds out that it's because 
she took the rope swing and it, it was finally too much weight for the rope swing. You know, it, everything was too wet. She fell. She drowned. The water was too high. All of these factors from the weather had come together. All of the factors that, quite frankly, Jess had been very nervous about that he'd tried to warn her about or maybe felt like he should have played it cooler about like he was having all of these conflicts about how to handle his fears about the weather but Leslie has drowned and he comes home to find everything changed she had really become like the best part of his life and changed everything for him and there's so many feelings that I had where I was kind of anticipating and maybe projecting a little bit like how I thought that he might feel I was like he's going to feel guilty because he should have invited Leslie he's going to have all these weird fears now about the afterlife because now that Leslie has gone to church with the family like they're thinking about hell and could she possibly go to hell because she didn't come to God like I was projecting all these very adult feelings, but he actually felt all of them. You know, I thought maybe it would be simpler. And I also found myself, I kept thinking, like, she's going to come back. Like, there's no way he's actually dead. And I thought it was, I thought it was really fascinating that my brain reverted to that place of being a kid where I was like, I don't, I don't think she actually died. Like, maybe she just like floated down river or something. Um, and I think it's a testament to the quality of Katherine Patterson's writing and the fact that she brings you back to that place of childhood so effectively that, like, I thought that that's what was going to happen. Yeah, the grief that, that everybody goes through is so real. Like, it actually it puts you through the five stages. Mm-hmm. Like, you go through denial, you go through anger, you go through bargaining, and you have to go through them with Jess, which is just incredibly powerful. So uh, I think one of the hardest things about that first scene is not only that he feels guilt and responsibility because he didn't build her a bridge or whatever, is that his parents initially thought that he was with her. He doesn't tell his parents he's going with Miss Edmonds, and they think he's drowned on his way into the woods, too, and that's awful. And then here again, there's a there's a comment on their economic disparity, because kids who've grown up with money will take risks. The kids who've grown up without money just won't. Like, Jess understands that things break and things fail, and you end up bearing the cost personally. And Leslie thinks... I'll be fine through whatever adventure because she's always had safety. So she'll continue taking that risk when he no longer will. And I I think a lot of those hard conversations that they're never going to have now uh, circle around that very important difference between them. They may not have known that it's about money, but it's about money. Like even his decision not to invite her is almost resentful. Leslie's already done all this. Leslie's done museums. Leslie's been to real cities. Like, I can have a little of my own here. There's an article I found in Slate that came out right after the movie was released in 2007. And the author of this article had some interesting things to say about the experience of reading this scene versus watching this scene. And even though we're not talking about the movie, I still think it's it's an interesting notion to share. She writes, yeah. when I read the book at 10 or 11, it was frightening and absorbing precisely because Leslie's accent felt unexpected, random, and senseless. But when I saw the new movie of Terabithia, I watched it through the eyes of a parent. This time, Leslie's death seemed senseless, but not random. This is a story in which the adventurous child dies and the cautious child lives. Yet somehow the lesson is not that Jess and Leslie should never have swung on the rope to their enchanted spot. Rather, the story suggests how death is always at the back of risk and beauty, as the friend I saw the movie with put it. That message of life's indelible tragic contours helps explain the power of Patterson's story 30 years after it was written and its relevance for our adult child-rearing times. 
I think that's pretty dead on. I didn't love the movie as an adaptation, but I, I do think that that central idea of death is just something that happens and nobody earns it and nobody deserves it. And it's, it's not forbidden to children and it's not forbidden to the innocent. It's just always with us, especially through things that involve risk and beauty. And the movie did manage to bring that very clearly into the story of the death of a child. Something that I found especially heartbreaking about Jess's grief, although so much of it was heartbreaking, was the way that through so much of this book, Jess is fighting. I don't know whether or not he realizes that he's fighting for this, but the way I read this book is that he's fighting to have something that's all his. And I think part of that comes from being a kid who doesn't have a lot of money. I think part of it comes from being part of a big family where he doesn't get a lot of attention. I think part of it comes from not feeling like he has a grip on anything at school. But the whole book, he's kind of trying to possess something that he doesn't have to share. And for a while, it was Leslie. Like, he was very possessive of their friendship at moments. But there's a moment right after Leslie dies when his parents... You know, they're now paying more attention to him because this tragedy has happened and they're concerned, which is another commentary on what it's like to grow up in a big family because he now actually All like, of a requires, sudden they know he exists. Right, exactly. Yeah. But they're like, we really think we should go pay respects to Leslie's family. Would you like to come with us? You really should because you were her friend. And the younger sisters want to go. And they're like, no, you, right. you have to stay home. And I just had this moment where I was like, this whole book he's been fighting for something that he doesn't have to share and he gets it, but it's grief. Like, the only thing that he doesn't have to share, that he gets to, like, have all of his own to be focused with, you know, alongside his parents. It's this, like, really sad situation. And it's, like, really a tragic end to his fight to own something. It is. It's true. What he ends up owning is, God, this is about to sound so bleak. What he ends up owning is what all of us own, and that is our pain. That's true. It's bleak, but it's true. It's true. <laughs> so it's, I guess that's that's probably why the book is so commonly challenged is because I knew that when I read this as a 10 year old, I understood that death is implacable and that the only thing you won't end up owning is your terrible, terrible feelings about what you've done and what's happened around you. Mm. And uh, yeah, that'll put a 10 year old into a, an existential funk. It's probably hard to watch. Well, and I feel like there's no way to transition out of this conversation because it's such an intense <laughs> one. Um, but I will say that the way that Catherine Patterson kind of wraps up this sad ending is that Jess builds a better bridge to Terabithia, he actually has had to save his younger sister, Maybell, who almost met the same fate as Leslie when she was trying to follow him into Terabithia, which is very upsetting, but he does save his sister from drowning and they get home safely. He then uses lumber that he gets from Leslie's parents before they move away and builds still like a pretty simple but a more reliable bridge that he and Maybell can use and he like makes Maybell the new queen of Terabithia and he encourages her to have a more open mind and, and it sort of becomes their place instead. So obviously it's like a sort of poetic nod to like things coming back around a little bit and maybe life won't be the same but it will go on yeah and help form this new relationship with his sister which in theory sounds really great and lovely and Maybelle has really been tagging along the whole book and for her to finally have the satisfaction of being included feels really good as a reader Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of how Catherine Patterson brings it all together which I think given like the emotional trauma that we all go through in the pages leading up to it like that's a pretty nice way to end it and sort of a nice tribute to Leslie. I think that's really good and it is the best possible tribute to Leslie and also 
uh, there is it's brief and it's almost toward the end but uh, Leslie a- ends up with a puppy who is associated with Terabithia and is part of the story and I know a lot of readers like hearing especially in a hard and emotionally difficult book that the dog lives mm-hmm. and I, I really liked that in this book the puppy lives he goes back with Leslie's parents who consider giving the dog to Jess and then just in the end can't part with him but like life does go on mm-hmm. with a cute little puppy and a new bridge to Terabithia hence yeah. the title on the whole did coming back to this book as an adult for SSR make you love it all the more, make you appreciate it all the more, or has it not held up for you? I loved it more. I appreciated it more. As much as it's it's a real crapshoot to go back to a book that you loved because our standards are necessarily different and we see problems where we didn't used to see problems and we, under, we come to understand that we accepted racism and sexism and terrible things in our books because we didn't know any better. And I really liked that I could go back to this book knowing better and find that it's still very much what I remember and it's still really a good book and I wouldn't feel bad about recommending it to anybody I knew with a kid that age, especially one who'd been through some stuff. Phew. Well, especially knowing that this book meant so much to you, I'm glad you feel that way. I never like to be the reason that somebody suddenly has all of these problems with their favorite books. So (laughs) I'm relieved on this one. I will say more often than not, these books hold up. And I don't know if it's because people come in to the experience with positive feelings about the book, but I've only ruined a few books for people. So that's good. That's a good track record. (laughs) I mean, you don't ruin anything. These books ruin themselves and it's good. It's really good to go back and examine things that you accepted without questioning because it helps you take apart your own unconscious biases and understand where these things came from. Like it may be painful, but I think it's good for us to do that. You just summed up this podcast in a much more beautiful way than I ever could have. So that that's the <laughs> sound bite right there. Thank you for summing it up. Cool. Um, other than Bridge to Terabithia, I'd love to know what you've been reading lately. We're always looking to offer some recommendations to our listeners. It does not have to be a middle grade or a YA book, just anything that you've been reading lately and enjoying. So it happens that I just read a really good new middle grade book. It's called Riverlands, and the author is Fran Wild. Uh, it's a lot like Bridge to Terabithia in that it engages with very difficult subjects, and it may not be the right book for every reader, but it'll be the perfect book for a lot of readers. So Riverlands is a portal fantasy story about two sisters who live in an abusive household. And it kind of connects the extreme rule keeping of an abusive household where you're not allowed to make noise and you're not allowed to ask for anything and you're not allowed to touch certain things. And the way those rules translate in a a goblin or a fae world in the same way, like never eat the food of the fae, never cross over after midnight, that kind of thing. So it makes these kids really intrepid travelers and capable in ways that kids who didn't grow up under that kind of structure would be. It's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. I will include a link to that book in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Bridge to Terabithia for those who want to revisit it. I will, of course, also include links to Meg's award-winning books, um, including her latest, The Book of Flora. Congratulations on all of the all of the wonderful critical acclaim that you've received for your books, um, and I hope that our listeners will go check them out. Thank you. I feel really lucky, and I hope so, too. Thank you so much for being on the SSR podcast with us today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Meg. Very much the same. Thank you, Ellie. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. 
Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.